Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome to Bible Study Live with Matt. I'm Matt, and today we're going to study the Bible live. Hey, is it childish? You heard me. Is it childish to believe the stories in the Bible? Is that a childish thing to do? To say, hey, I believe the Bible stuff is real. Is it childish to believe in God and Jesus and all of those things? That's what we're going to wrestle with this morning on Bible Study Live. We're going to dig into what does it mean to have faith like a child. And uh, yeah, so that's what we're going to wrestle with this morning. So here we go. Hey, thanks for tuning in and joining me for Bible Study Live this morning. It is Friday, the 9th of September and the last day of the week, which means that uh, Bible Study Live will be doing today and then we will be jumping back in on Monday. So today uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about being childlike in our faith. Uh, but, you know, as I was thinking about this this morning, I was dropping off my stepdaughter at school this morning and I was thinking about this a little bit and uh, it caused me to think about watching my kids when they were growing up. Uh, my sons, Colin and Liam, uh, and my daughter, Jillian, they've always been good at just making friends growing up. They, uh, But I especially think about my son, Colin, right now. I remember when he was in uh, first grade, he he had this amazing ability to, to draw people and to connect with them. Uh, Colin, one time, I think it was first grade because it was Mrs. Baker was his teacher. Um, Colin, every day for like a week, um, I forget what it was that prompted this, but like every day for a week, he wanted me to do his hair differently for school. Uh, like one day he had me do his hair like Elvis Presley, like his hair is pretty long, uh, always has been now it's like super long. Um, but he had me do his hair up like Elvis Presley one day and it was just, it was super cool. And then another day he had me, he was like, dad, I want you to do my hair like Johnny Bravo, which was kind of hilarious because. Uh, Johnny Bravo's hair is basically the same as Elvis Presley's hair. So that was pretty funny. Um, so I did his hair up like uh, Johnny Bravo the next day. And then one day he was like, Dad, I want you to do my hair like Wolverine. If you don't know Wolverine from the X-Men, I'm just going to pull it up because uh, y'all need to see Wolverine. Just in case maybe you're somebody who goes like, I have no idea who Wolverine is. Who is this Wolverine that you speak of? Uh, I'm going to show you who this Wolverine is that I speak of uh, right, right here by just sharing my screen. So this is Wolverine, right? Look at that sweet hair. See how I like curls up on the sides so my son Colin he was like I want my hair like Wolverine I was like <gasps> at first I was like oh my gosh Colin has been so good at making friends at school like things are going good he's gonna end up getting laughed at and picked on and whatever but I'm like listen I you know told him if he did good in school he could always have his hair however he wanted right whatever colors whatever crazy ways so uh <clears throat> I remember it took a long time painstakingly like blow drying and you know, brushing it up. And so he gets this cool Wolverine look and I bring him into school and we walk in the classroom and I remember Mrs. Baker looks and she's like, Oh, Colin, your hair today. Wow. That's great. And, uh, and Colin walks in. He's just so proud. And then I hear a kid go, Colin, your hair looks like Wolverine. That's so awesome. And boom, there he goes with his friends. And one of the things that I think of when I remember that moment is how my son, just loved to uh, to make friends, to connect with other people. And uh, those relationships, man, they, they were so good. You know, he had some great friends growing up. Our, our neighbor, Josh, his friend, Luke, like they, these friendships, just they were so beautiful, so awesome. And, um, and I think about stuff today and it's like, you know, back then, this is me aging myself because I'm 46, but in those days, in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, kids didn't live online. They, they weren't connecting through social media. They weren't detached, right? So conversations happened in the home. Conversations happened with friends. And I'm not saying they don't today, but it just felt like it was a little different. So it's interesting because while the world has changed technologically, a lot of the conversations haven't. And what do I mean by that? I mean, like... People back in Jesus' day, you know, would think it was crazy and immature to, to believe certain ways, to have certain thoughts. They would, they would, they would get, um, well, children were to be seen, not heard, is a saying I heard a lot growing up. 
And it seems like that was also the mindset in many ways back in Jesus' day, too. So today we're going to dig into a little passage uh, in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 10, where uh, Jesus has an encounter with some kids. And, um, and we're going to look at that encounter and then just wrestle with what we can learn from it today. So uh, without further ado, oh, uh, as always, the whole idea is to create some conversation without condemnation. My goal with this, what do I mean when I say that? My goal with this is that whatever I'm wrestling with in the scriptures, uh, obviously I believe what I believe. And, and so we all think whatever we believe is right. <laughs> but I want to challenge you just like I try and challenge myself to be open to learning new things that God is revealing to us or new perspectives to look at a passage from, right? Because there are multiple people in, in the stories, right? There, there's Jesus, there's the, the disciples, there are these little kids, there are the people watching the interaction. So as we read through the Bible, I'm going to challenge you to ask yourself a couple things. Who, who are the main players in what we're reading? Who are the main, you know, people interacting with stories? And in watching that, who are the secondary people involved that would be witnessing the story that we're reading? And think about, like, how does this interaction affect them? How does it affect each person that's part of the passage that we're reading through the scripture? And then and when we look at it, instead of thinking like, oh, this was written for me, start thinking, what would God want me to learn from witnessing these other people's life stories? Because that's, I think, what it often comes back to. Sometimes part of the challenge we have with the Bible is we go, oh, yeah, like somebody wrote this a bazillion years ago and it was written for me or to me. And it's like, listen, all things in the Bible, all of the things in the Scripture, uh, there's two, two things. They're either prescriptive, meaning things that we need to do because of it, or they're descriptive things that we need to uh, learn from, and it's describing a situation. Some, sometimes the story's got both uh, woven in. But my goal is not to, to try and convert you to, to believing what I believe. My goal is to try and inspire you to become a student, a devoted student of who Jesus is so that you can make a well-informed decision for yourself. Hopefully that makes sense. So that being said, here we go. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 10, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. Uh, if you're reading from the ESV, NIV, whatever, they're, those are, they're good. Okay, so here we go. <clears throat> I'd like to remind people who are newer as well that these verse numbers and chapters were not in the original writings. These are for reference for us now. These headers were also not in the original writings. These are just basically the translator's way of going, <clears throat> here's what this part, this section is about. So here we go. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as a little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Ooh-wee, that is really good. Whoever becomes humble like a child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. Let's stop right there for a second. I love this. Um, because it, when asked, hey, who's the greatest up there in God's kingdom? Uh, Jesus didn't say, uh, well, you know, um, the greatest is really me. And then you guys who are close to me. And then the super duper good, like the priests and, and the Levites and <clears throat> uh, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, Moses and then Elijah. Like Jesus didn't do that. When they said, who's the greatest? The first thing I ask is, why were they asking this question? Like what conversations were they having where they were just like, well, I'm greater than you. No, I'm greater than you. Like if earlier in Matthew, uh, if you read, I think it's chapter 12 or 13, 14, somewhere in there, um, the, the mother of uh, James and John, you know, asked Jesus, hey, let my son sit at your left and right side, right? And so it's interesting, like here we are chapters later in the writings um, that Matthew is keeping track of, and uh, here's the question arising again. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Does anybody else find it interesting that so many people are concerned with who's better than who? Like, when I read this, 
just the beginning question, it makes me feel a lot like sometimes the things that happen right now in Christianity, and we don't maybe say who's better than who, but secretly we think it, right? Like, <clears throat> excuse me, my allergies are killing me today. Um, like, you know, uh, I'm part of a non-denominational church. I would, I would be lying if I, if I pretended like uh, I didn't think removing denominations was better, right? Like to me, I think denominations divide. Now, I know some people would say, no, a denomination really is just like we have certain core beliefs and some of them are a little different. So this is how we identify ourselves. And I, and I think that's fair. Uh, but if we're being honest, right, if you're part of Church of Christ, you believe Church of Christ is the best way to believe. That's why you believe that way. If you're Lutheran, you believe that way because you think it's the best way to believe, right? So we all we all do. But there's a difference between going, I think this theology is accurate and that's why I believe this way and thinking I'm better than someone else. Right. And so this question from Jesus, most close, committed, devoted followers of who's the greatest in the kingdom really sounds like a who's better than who question. And uh, it's interesting because when God gave Adam dominion over everything, the only thing he didn't tell me had dominion over was other people. Right. He didn't do a you're better than other people thing. So from the beginning of time, we weren't supposed to behave and think that way, but we still do, right? We still wrestle with that in culture today. <clears throat> and another way that we show that we do that, that's not a very pretty way, is, um, hey, who's saved or who's not saved? Or, well, I don't know if they're really saved. Or, well, I believe they're saved, but I don't think they're quite this or that, right? We, that's just, we do it. And so Jesus immediately, instead of going, let me, let me just give you the order so that you got the hierarchy and you know, you know who's, how to get in where you fit in or who's the best, Jesus says, come here, little kid. And then he says, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get in the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as a child, as this little child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So that begs the question, what does it mean to be like a child? What does it mean to be like <clears throat> children? Well, just think of children today. And I don't mean like children corrupted, whatever. Just think of the a child. What are kids known for? Man, they're so inquisitive, aren't they? They ask so many stinking questions. And sometimes as a parent, right, it could get a little bit annoying. But if you really stop and think about it, it's a beautiful thing. They're so curious, right? Why is the sky blue? Why is the ocean green here and blue there? Uh, why can't animals speak English? Do dogs and cats talk to each other? Why does spinach taste like stinky socks? Whatever. Kids ask the best questions ever. And when I see Jesus going, unless you're like a child, unless you turn away from your sin and be like a child. See, we're all born with a sinful nature. We know that, right? I've heard people argue like, look, the reason a baby cries. See, it's like, ah, me, me, me. I put me first. Yes, it's the child is hungry. That's the way they communicate because they don't speak English yet. I don't really like that argument for original sin at all, if I'm being honest with you guys. But but I get the, the heart behind it is like we're all born with a sinful nature. But it's interesting that Jesus said, unless you become like this child. Well, the child is also born with a sinful nature. But he says, unless you turn from your sin and become like this child. See, something about that tells me that in, in our childlike minds, when we're a child, we don't fully grasp right from wrong. Like we, we start learning this is okay, this is not okay. But part of how we learn that is our, the reward and punishment systems that we learn growing up, right? If I speak in a negative tone, that's disrespectful. I get a punishment. Oh, then speaking in that tone is wrong. If I take something that doesn't belong with me and I get a punishment, then that behavior is wrong. If I be kind to somebody and then somebody praises me or gives me a reward for that, I learned that that behavior is right. So interestingly enough, even though all of us uh, are born into a sinful world and sin is in our, in our lives from the, from the beginning, uh, the reality is that G Jesus differentiates the mind of an adult and the heart of an adult, rather, uh, and the heart of a child. So even though we're all born with sin, there's something unique about the way a child processes things. They're curious, they're inquisitive, which means they're open to learning. Makes me think of my grandson, Christopher. I love this kid. He is like so stinking cool. 
uh, Christopher, um, I went up to visit in Michigan uh, a few weeks ago, and um, and he's riding with me to dinner, and he's telling me all about like how he loves learning about like megalodons and uh, and all these other crazy gigantic like sharks and whales and he said he's going to be a marine biologist and he's going to use the dna from like a great white shark and something else to make a megalodon and i'm like why would you do that he's like because it's neat he's like it's so neat he's like let me tell you grandpa matt and then he just starts telling me all these things he learned <laughs> from discovery channel but also from fictional movies but it's a beautiful thing to see this curiosity of a child. But there's something else that children do so much better than adults. And that is they, they build community with each other in such a beautiful way. And so when I see Jesus get asked, like, who's the greatest in the kingdom? First thing is, who's better than who? And it's interesting, that's not the natural thing kids do. See, kids look at somebody it doesn't matter their hair color their skin color the language they speak and kids go hey another kid we should probably be friends and they connect uh makes me think of this awesome kid at the church we go to named Bo and Bo's like a middle school kid man this kid is so awesome like he, it, like he just comes up and he'll just ask questions and have conversations with you uh his parents and, and us have become friends and um and it's funny because <clears throat> he came over here with his dad one day. They'd given me a ride to church when Daryl was out of town with our car because we work from home, so we share a car. And uh, Amos gave me a ride home with Bo. And uh, Bo was petting our dogs, Bonnie and Izzy. And now when I see Bo, he's like, hey, any new stories about Bonnie and Izzy? Like, what have they been up to? It's just so great. And the kid just comes and he just, it's like he creates community wherever he goes. He wants to talk to everybody. And I think we can learn something. When Jesus says, anyone who becomes humble as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what does being humble like a child mean? It means not thinking I'm too, too good, too, too amazing, too important to share life with people. You know, I'm going <clears throat> to poke at you a little bit real quick. Um, we belong to an amazing church here in Tennessee with just beautiful people around. There's a certain demographic though that just hates the idea of small groups. They they hate it. They they despise it. They complain about it. So much so to the point that that our youth pastor uh, Sunday when he got up was like, "Hey, listen. We've heard you you who are complaining about this whole oh, we're doing small groups again." Like there are people that they just don't want to wrestle with God's word and what it means on their life. They're happy to go to church on Sunday and Wednesday because that's what, that's what Christianity has been to them. And part of me gets it because how we grow up and what we're taught, we think that's church. Anything new and different isn't. But I want to challenge all of us. When we look at how Jesus said to live out life as the church, conversations like the one he had with the disciples should be things we learn from. See, if we don't break the big down to the small, we can't have faith like a child. If we don't intentionally seek community and relationship, we don't have the faith like a child. If we're not curious and questioning and asking hard questions to wrestle with God's word and the implications of our life, how could we possibly have the faith like a child? If we think we've got the answers and we go, listen, I'm not comfortable. I don't do the small group thing. Or maybe it's the opposite. We go, I only do small group. I don't do the worship gathering thing. Once we start thinking our way is better than what Jesus told us, then we're crossing over into some silly territory. We start thinking we know better than Jesus. Nobody will say it with their mouth, but it's what we're saying with our actions. I don't like this gathering together in small groups and sharing life and getting vulnerable and, and talking about things we struggle with. That makes me uncomfortable, so I'm not going to do it. Okay, you think you know better than Jesus. Oh, well, no, but I don't think you have to do that. Well, Jesus showed us you have to do that. So you think you know better than Jesus. No, I'm not saying that. Well, yeah, you are with our actions, right? Same thing with I don't think I need to go to a church and have a church family to, to follow God. No, you don't have to. to you don't have to. To know God, you don't have to to get be saved, right? Jesus already did that for you. But 
like somebody else had illustrated before, like I have a, I'm, I'm married to my wife. She's amazing. She's wonderful. I love her. We still, I mean, we've been married two years. We've been together for over five. We're still getting to know each other, right? We still ask questions about each other's life. We still have surprises like, oh, no way. Like I just learned that she used to play piano and flute. I never even knew that. She didn't do it since we've known each other. I'm like, oh, wow, that's crazy. That's a cool thing I learned. We, every night, I read the Bible to her before bed, and we, we like, we'll have conversations about God. Every morning, we do a devotional together. As soon as we wake up, pray over her and over our day, and then we do our devotionals together. And it's not to reinforce what we think we know. It's to see what, what can we learn new in our relationship with God. So here's the thing. Whether you think, I don't need small groups. I don't need to go to church. Uh, God save me. I don't need to do that stuff. Whatever your thought process is, here's the deal. You don't have to do that to be saved. But like any relationship, if you don't spend time in it, it can't grow. And if something isn't growing, it's dying. That's real life. That's how it works. Okay. This is just, if you're not growing, you're dying. So if we aren't getting together in building community, relationships aren't growing. The gospel can't spread the way that it's supposed to spread. If we aren't building community, it's impossible, right? That's why Jesus said, go and make disciples. Well, you can't make disciples out of people you're not connecting with. What is a disciple? A student. You can't get somebody interested in learning about God and Jesus if we're not in community, right? So that's one thing. Folks who avoid the Sunday worship gathering, well, how do I do that? I don't need this corporate deal, whatever. Like, I feel you. Like, I'm that's like I'm like a not the corporate kind of dude. But here's the reality. Our Pastor Eddie said something so beautiful last week. I love it. He said, the Sunday worship gathering is where we get together and, and really, like, a large chunk of the church as a whole, the body of Christ. It's where we get together and we get to celebrate God, right? We sing praises. We hear some good teaching. It's really, it's kind of like, it's like the celebration, right? That is awesome. He said, but where we grow is when we break it down into small. Why? Because in the small, that's where we can have that childlike faith where we ask questions. It's a safe place to ask questions and wrestle. But we're not done yet. We're not done because Jesus goes on and he goes a little deeper in this. So after he says this, so anyone who becomes as humble as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He said, and anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf or in my name is welcoming me. So when we show love to children, we're showing love to Jesus. When we show love to the curious, the innocent, those who are seeking knowledge, man, we're showing love to God. Verse six, though, abrupt gear shift. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits this world because it tempts people to sin. He says, temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown in the eternal fire with both your hands and feet. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown in the fires of hell. And then he wraps with this, beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels are always heavenly father okay let's just break this down just a teeny bit i'm gonna tell you what i wrestle with when i read this first anyone who causes right if you cause any of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin it'd be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and drown in the depths of the sea i don't know about you but drowning is like one of my all-time fears of like ways to die uh being eaten by a shark Burning to death in fire and drowning. Those are like the three things for me. I'm like, I just don't want to die those ways. Uh, shark attack, fire, drowning. Why? Because drowning, you, you're, you can't breathe, right? It's horrifying. Anyways, Jesus says, and this is interesting. If you cause one of these little ones who trust me to fall into sin. My wife and I were literally wrestling with this last night. We were talking about this verse. And I was like, you know, this makes me think of all the stuff I'm seeing on social media right now. People taking their kids to drag shows. People telling their kids that 
God made you, you know, the child who God made a boy telling him, nah, God's wrong. You're right. You want to get on hormones and, and, and have a mastectomy and have surgery to change your gender. Like they're children. They're curious. They're asking questions. They have struggles, but leading them intentionally down a path against God. That's what, that's just what comes to mind when I read this first. I'm like, is that today? Like, is that today? What, would be the equivalent of what Jesus is talking about. People who uh, hurt children sexually, right? They're, they're leading them into sexual sin too. Uh, and I'm not just talking about like the whole drag show thing. I'm talking about like people that molest children and hurt them. Like they're leading these children into sin because now this child is being taught that this is how you treat a child, right? And so it is generational hurt, generational damage. And Jesus says, you, the consequence for, for leading one of these little children away from me and into a life apart from God, the consequence of that, you would welcome being drowned over the consequence of this. Now, the interesting thing is we don't get told what the consequence is, right? If somebody hurts a kid and then they repent, well, do they go to heaven? Do they not? We're not even going down that road in this episode of Bible Study Life. But what I will say is that Jesus sure seems to not just keep it with the children though because the next thing he says what sorrow awaits this world because it tempts people to sin well here's what we know okay let's just let's just strip it all back to what we know what sorrow awaits this world because it tempts people to sin well we do know that at the end of this this world as a whole will be destroyed and there will be a new heaven and a new earth so one could simply look at this from one perspective and say the sorrow that awaits this world is that this world will ultimately face destruction. It will be destroyed. A day will come where this world gets destroyed. Why? Because it tempts people into sin, right? That happened in the fall in the garden. The wages of sin, right? The payment for our sin is that our bodies die. We have a physical death. It says the wages of sin is death. So we know the punishment for sin is death. We know that for sure. Now, we also are led to believe that there should be a bigger consequence, which is eternity apart from God in hell. Some say that is what that death is referring to, and it may be. Uh, but then we read about Paul saying, you know, if death could come in and condemn everyone, how much stronger is the grace and mercy of what Jesus did to overcome that, right? Well, we still know we physically die, so if it's referring to the eternal death, then we know Jesus overcame that. But what of people who hurt kids? Man, I don't know, but Jesus' words are strong enough that I, I wouldn't want to be somebody who leads a child into sin. But Jesus didn't stop at that. He said, well, sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. So the innocent, interesting thing to me as I wrestle with this is that Jesus says, unless you become like a child, right? You don't, you'll never get into the kingdom. You're never going to see the kingdom. So when Jesus talks about children, he also talks about how we can become like them. We could be curious like them. We could be willing to look to God, our father, for guidance, like a child would look to their father, their parent, their, their parents for guidance, right? Jesus says, temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? Man, I can tell you, like, not children. Um, well, I would say this, though, even if, like, when we lead a, a child into, like, trying to get them into things that are opposing God, uh, trying to get a child into like, there are obvious things, right? Pornography and disgusting. Right. But what about like even stuff like, Oh, you know, Oh, my kids are not quite old enough to watch this TV show or this movie or, you know, whatever, but I can't wait till they get to the age that I can introduce them to the horror movie genre or stuff like that. Right. Is, is that what he's referring to? Like, Am I leading my child into sin by going, oh, you're old enough to watch these movies and stuff? I mean, it, it, it should cause us all to pause, I think, and question what could Jesus mean by temptations are inevitable, like there's always going to be temptation around us, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It sounds like he's referring to like if you're intentionally leading someone into something that could draw them away from God, that's, man... That's the bad news bears. If you're intentionally trying to lead somebody down a path that would pull them away from God, 
what sorrow awaits us. So what are things that I could do that could pull someone away from God? Because now he's talking about people, not just children, right? So first it's you hurt these kids. You lead these kids away from me. You don't wish you were drowned. That'd be better for you. And then he says, temptation's all around us, but the person who's doing the tempting that's leading people away, ooh, man, you don't, you don't want to be that person, right? You don't, there, ooh, there's some sorrow that awaits. And then he uses some really weird uh, anthropomorphic language, right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. I mean, if he meant that literally, we would hear stories about like Peter, the one-eyed disciple, or Peter, the one-handed disciple, because he took his sword out and lops a guy's ear off. We, we'd be like, oh, Peter, the, the one-eyed disciple, because when the lady asked him like, hey, aren't you with that Jesus? And he's like, no, I never even heard of him. Like, well, why didn't he gouge his eye out? Like he saw Jesus catch him and look at him, right? After the third time, which was a reminder to, hey, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. We don't hear stories about one-eyed and one-armed disciples, even though they committed sins, right? They weren't sinless like Jesus. So it would seem that he's speaking metaphorically to remind us that like, listen, you're going to be tempted to do things. You're going to, I remember an old friend of mine was preaching and, um, and he told this story and I thought, I think it's real fitting to share. Now I won't share his name, um, but he shared the story. He said, uh, you know, He's like, there's this natural desire, right, for sin in the, that is just ingrained in us, or, or maybe it's learned from the world being broken, whatever it is, but, but we have these desires. And he, he, he was sharing a story about how that he and his spouse, they were parked somewhere, and some attractive female, whatever, tight fitting clothes walks by, and, and obviously he saw her, right? And then he said, he went back to what he was doing, he goes, but then he took a second look. And then when he looked back, he and his wife made eye contact and he had realized in that moment that in his heart, right? He committed adultery in his heart, that there was this temptation to lust, right? And he said, the sin wasn't in the fact that I noticed someone walking by. And he said, but what wasn't okay was I intentionally took a second look at this woman who wasn't my wife. And he's like, and my heart just broke because I realized how, how much of a violation that was against not only my wife, but against God, right? Because God had given me my wife as a gift. And he just shared that. And it was, it was very vulnerable when he shared it. And, and some people go, oh, come on, man. That's just over the top. That's silly, right? That's just crazy. But it's not. It's not when we think about it, right? Like, it seems to me it's a lot less crazy sounding than what Jesus just said here. God, dry out. Cut your hand out. That sounds crazy. But in this thing that my friend shared when he was teaching, he was being very honest about stuff that I don't think we even ask ourselves. Like, well, but is it? And how is it a violation, right? How am I hurting God? How am I hurting other people with sinful, willfully intentional sinful behavior? I shared yesterday, it was in the first half of the um, Bible study live that was without sound, which is why the last 14 minutes of Thankfully, the recap, I covered the whole thing in 14 minutes, but I shared yesterday how, like, we have the game Cards Against Humanity. We've enjoyed playing it. We thought it was fun, right? Why? Oh, it's a little risque. And then we bought the absurd pack, and it's just way over the top. And um, and we had played this game with my son and daughter-in-law and some friends, and, you know, I was kind of like, I remember my wife saying to uh, one of our friends, like, next time when we get together, we'll play a game where we can make eye contact. And it just started weighing on our hearts, and we were just talking about this uh, about a week or so ago, and we were just like, you know what? We're just, we're not going to play anymore. We're getting rid of it. Why? Well, because those aren't things that we would, they're not conversations we would have. They're not pr appropriate. Like we wouldn't have those conversations that say the same things that are on the cards. We just wouldn't, we know it, we wouldn't. So it's like, well, then why do we think it's okay when we just call it a game? Then it, it's okay, right? No, it's not. And I think that brings me full circle back to being like a child, right? Because Jesus first talks about leading children into sin, but then he talks about leading people into sin. Yep. And, and the, how, how it's just not okay. If, we, if we're living in a broken world, we know brokenness is around us. We know sin is around us. We know temptation is around us. But if we're following Christ, if we really identify as a Christ follower, and I, it's even weird saying if I identify us because now this broken world has even corrupted the word identify us. I'm not talking about gender identity and all that crap. 
God made them male and female. End of discussion. There's, there's that one. The end. But I mean, if we say, I am a follower of Jesus, I, I am trying to be like Jesus, then I think that should cause us to question the decisions we make. Hey, is what I'm doing something that could lead somebody into sinful thoughts, which could lead to sinful behaviors? And if you're new and maybe you're like, oh, sin, all these God words, let me just put it in normal English. Is what I'm doing something that can make people think about stuff God wouldn't think is okay? Is, is it something that could then lead them to make decisions that could be destructive for their life here and their life in the age to come, right? Is watching a movie that has some scenes in it that are really not okay, is it something that could lead a person's heart to go, ooh, I like that, when we full well know that's not something pleasing to God. These are things that we should wrestle with. So... The last verse, though, beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones. For I tell you that they're in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly father. Seems to me, as he brings it back, I don't know if he just means little ones children, or if he means little ones like those who are God's children, people who are followers of him. And, uh, and if he's talking about don't lead them away from me, right? I don't know if the little ones he's referring to in that closing remark is a child or someone with childlike faith or whatever it is. Um, I would, I, I would wrestle with and venture a guess. It, it could apply to both because someone who's mature in their faith shouldn't, you know, like you're not going to look down on them, but it says, be, well, yeah, I'm going to say maybe it's just the kids. Cause it's just beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones. And he's talking to the disciples after calling a child over. For in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly father. It does make me think of this. And it's funny because I heard somebody ask this question from pastor's perspective two days ago uh, about this verse. And one of the things Bobby Conway, the one minute apologist, said that I thought was pretty, pretty intriguing was uh, or it was either him or Mike Chaddock. But they were talking about this and they said, look, we don't know if like, does every child have its own guardian angel? Uh, it's just like a guardian angel cover a region. It covers all these. We don't know how that looks. We, we, we don't know. Everything is just an uneducated guess based on. Oh, could mean this, could mean that. But here's what we do know. Whether it's one angel per thousand kids or an angel per kid or, or an angel per new believer, here's what we do know. That's very clear. Those, those angels, those messengers, an angel is a messenger, they're constantly in the presence of God. So everything that's happening to these children, everything that's happening to these believers with childlike faith, every single thing, a messenger of God, is communicating to God. This is what's happening. Hey, so-and-so is bringing harm to this child. So-and-so is leading this child astray. Now, what are the repercussions of that? Well, Jesus shared some idea of it, but here's the reality. We don't know. But what I do know is, I don't want to be on the other end of those repercussions. I want to be someone who's leading a child to draw closer to God. I want to be someone who's leading everyone to draw closer to God. I don't want to risk the consequence of what could possibly be if I'm leading people away from God. And I want to point you guys to one last verse and then I'm going to close it up today because this, uh, I stumbled across today when I opened Bible Gateway, it was today's verse. And I was like, oh man, <clears throat> this is actually ties right into what I was going to do. It, listen to this, Titus chapter two, verses one and two. It says, as for you, Titus, Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Dig this. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Pause for a minute. Interestingly, he's, he doesn't say go teach the children to do this. But what do we teach children? We teach them to exercise self-control, right? You see the kid in the grocery store aisle screaming for the candy. You know, I don't want candy. I want Skittles. I want Skittles. And mama's like, no, no, little Timmy, you can't have Skittles. And the kid's throwing a tantrum, right? Why? Because they're not exercising self-control. They're giving into their selfish nature. They're a child. But it's interesting. He says, teach, Titus, teach the older men to exercise self-control. 
to be worthy of respect and to live wisely. So what we learn from this is if you don't have self-control, you're not worthy of respect and you're not living wisely. Friends, when we look at the scriptures, sometimes people think we're naive for believing in God, right? I see these things online where they're like, oh, you know, if you believe in like, you know, the old big white bearded man in outer space, like how stupid is that? Oh, you believe some some virgin had a baby. That's not the science. It's like the same people who can't tell me what a woman is would tell me that scientifically a virgin couldn't have given birth. Okay. Here's the thing. When I look at the scriptures, if I even for a moment set aside some of the supernatural things that are hard for people to believe, here's what I can unequivocally say. Loving children and protecting them. That's sound advice. Exercising self-control, being worthy of respect, that's sound advice. Loving your neighbor and treating them with the same dignity, love, and respect that you give yourself, that's sound advice. Now add to it that it comes from Jesus who was there from the creation of the earth, the foundations of the universe. Add to that that he said, you're worthy of my love, so I'm going to trade my life for yours. Man, when that person says, don't lead people away from me, help people to become committed students of me, when when somebody who was willing to lay their life down for me, set aside their deity to come and do that, when they say, and don't lead these kids astray, lead them to me. Don't lead these adults astray, lead them to me. When the person that gave it all up for me tells me that, it's more than sound advice. I owe them a debt I can never repay. It's a way of life that I need to adopt. Friends, can I encourage you? Look at the beautiful things about children, their curiosity, their creativity. The Bible says God made man in his image. Well, God was a creator. He built the heavens, the earth, all these crazy looking animals, a, a, a body that functions in ways that we still can't replicate. With all the science in the world, we cannot recreate all of this. Yet God did it with a word. What? That's amazing. That's amazing. God is also curious. I believe the scriptures show us that. When God creates an environment in a setting, he already knows what's going to happen, but he put a curiosity in us. And since we're made in his image, we have to believe that God has this never-ending desire to create and be curious and make things more beautiful and more wondrous. And when it says we're created in his image, and then Jesus says, be like these kids, it sounds like the earlier part of our lives, our lives are tracking a little closer to being the people that God created us to be before we get corrupted by the world, before we get corrupted by, and by so much of this world, by our life experiences, before we experience the wounds of others hurting us, before we experience the lies of others misleading us, we just have this beautiful curiosity. Is Santa Claus real? Is the tooth fairy real? That's the kind of stuff kids ask. Kids ask when you read them the Bible and you talk about how uh, Moses, you know, uh, was a baby and that Herod wanted to kill all, you know, made an order to kill all these, you know, young Hebrew children so they couldn't, or excuse me, Pharaoh gave this command to kill all these Hebrew children right? Because he didn't want to get overrun by the Hebrews. He gives this command. A child will ask a question like, why would he think that all these Hebrew kids would want to overtake him? Which would then lead to the question, what was he doing? That would, what was Pharaoh doing to make people feel that way? And if you were talking to a child and you read the story about Moses and that, and then you were to talk about Jesus' birth and how Herod ordered every child under two years old to be killed, a little child would go, why would a king want all these little kids killed? 
Oh, well, because this Jesus is going to be the Messiah. Well, wait a minute. What's Messiah mean? Well, Messiah means he's, he's come to be the savior of all these, all the, all the people, all the Hebrew people, uh, all the Jewish people. And then a little kid will go, well, then why would this Jewish king want to kill the Jewish kid that's going to come and save all the Jewish people? Wouldn't the king want the best for the people? Like Those are the questions a child asks. So here's my, here's my encouragement to you. God created you with the curiosity of a child. He created you in this image. And here's my challenge to you. Are you still asking questions when you read your Bible? Are you still fascinated by the mystery and the beauty and the wonder of what God is doing? Are you? Or do you just read it and show up and count on somebody else to tell you on Sunday morning what God means. And that's it. Oh, my pastor said this, so that's what it means. You know, do you know pastors are humans? And I think that 99% of them have the best heart and they're trying to make disciples for Jesus. And out of the 99%, here's what I can tell you 100% of them don't get it right 100% of the time. There's no way we can. I got my ordination. 16, 15, 16 years ago, 15 years ago. I don't get it right all the time. I get it, I'm sure I missed the mark. Just like any pastor on stage today who's still a preaching and teaching pastor, they'll never get it right all the time. You know why? Because none of us can understand the mind of God. But we are called to become committed, devoted students of Jesus. So forever we're supposed to be learning, which means forever we're supposed to be, when we read the Bible, asking God questions and saying, God, please teach me and show me how to draw closer to you. Give me a better understanding. Give me wisdom like Solomon, but a heart like Jesus. Give me the conviction of Job, but or of, excuse me, of Jonah. Give me the conviction of Jonah, but give me the love of Jesus, right? Help me be like so strong and firm in my beliefs about you, like Jonah was strong and firm in his beliefs that the Ninevites were horrible people. But give me your heart, Jesus, so that in my strength and belief, I will have the compassion to try and seek people out and draw them closer to you, right? Give me that, Lord. Help me to be curious like a child and help me to lead others to you. Are you asking questions of God when you read your Bible. You still have that childlike curiosity. If you don't, can I encourage you, when you start reading your scriptures, read a section at a time and stop and see how many questions you can come up with from that little piece you read. Right? When you read a piece of scripture, here, I'm going to grab a little piece for you. I'll give you a great example. I'm just going to grab one out of my little message, solo devotional. Uh, when we read a piece of scripture like uh, James chapter 4, 7 through 10, so let God work his will in you. Yell a loud no to the devil and watch him scamper. What is God's will in me? Let God work his will in you. What is God's will in me? Yell a loud no to the devil and watch him scamper. A, a loud no to what about the devil? What is the devil trying to get me to say yes to? Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Wait a minute. He'll be here physically. He'll be here in my head. Does it just mean that I'm supposed to know God's here? Like what are the questions I should be asking? Quit dabbling in sin. What does it mean to dabble in sin? Does it mean playing games like Cards Against Humanity? I, I kind of think it does. That's why we're Awesome. Uh, purify your inner life. What is an inner life versus an outer life? Like, aren't they one and the same? Aren't they tied together? Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. Why would James tell me to hit bottom? I thought hitting bottom is, is going all the way in the wrong direction. What does that mean? Or does it just mean recognizing the mistakes that are made and the choices that are made and being so broken that I cry out to God? Is that what James means? The fun and games are over. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus wanted me to experience joy, right? Like everything we read in the scriptures, are we, are we asking a question to understand better what, what it means? James says, get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. Wait, how is getting on my feet or on my knees going to get me on my feet? Isn't it the opposite of getting on my feet? Oh, wait, but if I stand up, I'm standing up in my own strength. But if I'm on my knees in prayer, am I trusting God to lift me in his strength? That's what I mean by are you asking questions of your Bible? There's a little tiny bit from that section of James, and it's like every single sentence can lead to questions that lead to more questions. And that's how we get to know God. 
That's how we get to know God's calling on our life. By being like a child and being inquisitive and asking questions. But if we want to grow up to be productive members of God's family, we have to listen for the answers. Sometimes the answers will come through other people. Sometimes the answers will come directly from God. I'll wrap this with a story of my own, speaking of children. When my kids were growing up, I was a selfish dick. It's honest. I said all the time, I was trying to make the best life for my family. That's why I was like, you know, flying all over, getting on a plane Monday morning, coming home Thursday and Friday night, uh, because it was to make a better life for my children so that I could leave a legacy for them so they would have, you know, resources and they wouldn't grow up poor like I grew up and they wouldn't, you know, grow up in a trailer park like I grew up and they wouldn't grow up with, you know, uh, getting government cheese and powdered milk like I got when I was growing up, when I was young. Like, I, I, I said that's why I was doing it, but you know what the honest truth is? I loved being on stage. And I'm an introvert by nature. Like, when I say introvert, like, I'm not somebody, like, I don't like risking embarrassment and pain and hurt. So... I don't, I didn't like speaking out or speaking to people it was not my thing. And everybody who knows me now is like BS. It's true. I, I had friends in each social, social circle because I, I wasn't good at like, uh, somehow I found it every time I opened my mouth, I had a knack for ticking someone off who'd want to beat me up when I was a kid. So I just befriended a whole bunch of people in different circles. So somebody over here hated me, this person would protect me kind of deal. It, it wasn't until I got older that I started you know, doing martial arts and combat sports stuff to make sure that I couldn't get pounded into the ground as an adult. But I didn't put myself out there. I didn't do any talent shows. I didn't volunteer to speak. I didn't do any of that. And then when I became an adult and I, I, I was forced into becoming a sales trainer by one of my employers because everybody had to, um, I realized I had, the, I had the ability to influence people's thought, to help them see things in a better way. And then it was exciting to me. And then when I, when I uh, became a trainer for cars.com and I was on the road, I was on the road Monday to Friday, <clears throat> making a good income, six figure income. And in doing so, I kept saying, well, it's for my kids, for my kids, for my kids. No, it wasn't. I loved the feeling of other people praising me. I loved that other people put me on a pedestal and were like, man, this guy is this. My, my best friend, Chris, and I were uh, in California at NADA years ago. And I introduced Chris to someone who I think is just an amazing human. And he was a mentor of mine when I was at Cars.com. His name is Alex Vetter. He's president of Cars.com. And he is one of the coolest dudes ever. Uh, he walks the talk, good integrity, just a good dude. And Alex was telling Chris, man, when Matt was a trainer, you should have seen it. He said he was like a demigod. And when he said that, I was like, Phew. I was so great. Literally, that's the feeling that came over me. See, <clears throat> I share that story with you guys because when I read this section of Titus saying, promote a kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching and teach older men to exercise self-control. And when I read about the way we're supposed to love and care for children, I can tell you there was this period in my life where I made me the most important thing in the world. I exercised no self-control in anything at all. I wasn't curious. I had felt like I was at the peak of the mountaintop and I was the best and I knew everything. And, and while I would learn different techniques and tactics, it was really because I was just crafting myself to make myself even better than the best version of me who was already better than just about everybody else because I was so diverse in everything I did. And my children all the while, five days a week, didn't have their dad. Children all the while would ask me why this and why that. And I wasn't leading them to God. I was leading them away from God. As their father, as a man who's supposed to be setting an example, I was showing them that putting your family first isn't what God wants. That money and acquisition and, and fit little bits of fame, that that's what you're supposed to do. I'm so glad that God has given me a second chance in life to show them a better way to live. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with working hard, right? I think that's such a good example. And scripturally, we see that it's a good example. But there's a difference between working hard and from the heart 
and working to build yourself into an idol that you can worship, right? What are we teaching our kids in the life that we're living right now? Are we showing them the value of loving others? Are we showing our kids the power and the life change that comes from loving one another, loving God, following his example, the one that Jesus set and loving others? There you go. If believing in the Bible and Jesus makes me childish, I celebrate the childish nature that God has put in my heart. And I want to challenge you, my friends, be childish, be childlike, ask questions. When you read your Bible, stop trying to see if you can get through the whole Bible in a year. Pick a part of the Bible to read and say, God, keep me here until I feel like you tell me to move. There you go. There's a challenge. Hey, it's a long one on Friday. How about that? Uh, I will see you Monday, sometime between 7.30 and 8.30 a.m. Central Daylight Time for another Bible Study Live. Listen, may God bless you and your family. May he bless your efforts and everything that you step out and do today. I hope that God fills your heart with a burning childlike desire to just ask a ton of questions. I pray that God will protect you and draw you closer to him. And I pray a blessing over every effort that you make today in your personal, family, business lives. It's in Jesus' name that I just praise God for you. Thanks for tuning in. I love you guys. Hey, selfless plug, if y'all don't mind. Shameless plug, not selfless. Shameless, selfful. Not really. My wife, Dara, and I wrote a book called uh, For This Reason, How to Live in Ephesians 5 Marriage. And uh, we've both been married before. We both have failed marriages before. And uh, we feel like Ephesians 5 really paints a picture of how to live a successful marriage God's way. And uh, the crazy thing about how we wrote this book is we took this section from Ephesians 5. We didn't talk to each other about how we were writing. And we broke it into four sections. And then we each wrote, what is that saying to my wife? Wrote, like, what is it saying to me as a woman, as a wife, as a follower of Jesus? And I wrote, what is it saying to me as a man, a husband, a follower of Jesus? And not in those orders, but what does it say to me as a Christ follower, as a husband, as a man? Uh, I think I got to be a good Christ follower and a good man to be a good husband. So I guess Christ follower, man, husband. Anyways, we wrote without telling each other what we wrote until the whole book was done. And the book is written into these movements. And each movement has a section from me and a section from Dara. And it's designed, it was written, and by the way, it's amazing. The Bible says two become one when they get married. Wow. This book really proves, I think it, it really proves that because Dara and I are very different in how we approach things theologically. But when we, when we wrestle with these scriptures, it's amazing how complimentary our thoughts are, but it's designed. We wrote this book because we have friends who've been married for a bazillion years, friends who are newly married, but we, we saw a pattern amongst married friends. Um, and uh, man, this is a tough one. We have friends who like men together. They're just so in love. And then when they're apart, all they could talk about was the, the hurt and the brokenness that they experienced from their spouse. And not because their spouse was like abusive or stuff, but like um, these feelings of like, man, I can't even bring up a situation to my spouse because they think I'm attacking them if I bring up a concern. Or uh, friends who would say, you know, my spouse hasn't been intimate with me in months, years. And it's like, wait, what? How does that, how does that happen in a marriage where someone has no longer has a desire for intimacy with you like what like to hear the hurt in relationships like that it made us go you know there's a better way and god shows it to us through the letter that paul wrote in the church to ephesus so if you're somebody who maybe your marriage is struggling and you're like you know there have been so many times i would have thrown in the towel but we don't throw in the towel because we're married and we got kids so we're not going to get divorced till the kids grow up. Maybe you've said that. Maybe in your heart you've thought it. Maybe you've said, oh, man, this isn't what I signed up for when we got married. Maybe you've wrestled with whatever in your marriage, and it's just tough. This book could be helpful. Maybe you have a good marriage, but you're like, man, we, it's, it's a good marriage, but maybe, it didn't, maybe yours didn't start with God at the center of it. And maybe you're just like, how do we, how do we make our marriage Christ centered? And this could be a good resource for you too. Maybe your marriage is good, but you're just like, hmm, we're just looking for a new marriage book to maybe spice it up a little, spruce it up a little. 
uh, then this could be a good resource. If you want to get your hands on it, text the word love right there. Text the word love to the phone number 1-833-981-0002. Standard messaging and data rates apply, frequency varies. Uh, if you text the word love to that phone number, uh, you'll receive an instant automatic link texted back to you. Uh, and it's the link to buy the book on Amazon. It's available in uh, Kindle and uh, paperback. I don't think hardcover yet. So there you go. Grab yourself a copy. It's a, it's a good book. It, it hopefully it'll it'll strengthen and better your marriage and if you're watching this and you've already read it would you do us a favor and go leave us a review uh good better and different we just love an honest review uh that helps us to know hey are we really you know writing from the heart that here's god or are we are we missing the mark so anyways hope that you'll check it out uh thanks again for tuning in and uh, remember this no matter where you're at in your journey with god you are just one moment away from walking a little closer with Jesus. This is your moment, my friend. Don't miss it. Love you guys. I will see you Monday morning. Ooh.